Greetings, listeners, and welcome to the Princeton Tory Podcast. My name is Billy Wade of the class of 2023 at Princeton University, and you are listening to the number one conservative podcast at Princeton University. If the relentless Twitter fights and Facebook's constant reminder to go out and vote hasn't given you the hint yet, the United States has just gone through election season. Almost two weeks ago, millions of Americans voted for who they would like to lead our country. After four years of speculation, we now have data and still waiting on more to draw conclusions and make forecasts of America's political future. To begin digesting a post-2020 election America, we have two fantastic guests. We are incredibly honored to have with us Dr. Matthew J. Frank and Jared Stone. Dr. Frank is the Associate Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions and Lecturer in Politics at Princeton University. He is also a Senior Fellow of the Witherspoon Institute in Princeton and Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Radford University in Virginia, where he taught constitutional law, American politics, and political philosophy. He is also widely published in the Washington Post, National Review, and many other publications. Jared Stone is a freshman at Princeton and a prospective classics major with a focus on the languages of Latin and ancient Greek. He is also interested in American political history, coalition changes, and electoral analysis. Along with the Tory, he's involved with Jewish life, the band, and the Princeton Gerrymandering Project, where he is specializing in state legislative results and redistricting. Beyond school, he's a contributor to the grassroots election news organization, Elections Daily, and a main panelist on a show called The Map Room. Thank you both so much for being here. Glad to be with you, Billy. Thanks for having us. Of course, of course. Well, there has been a lot of news in the past two weeks. I don't know how you guys were watching election night, but I had uh, various cable news on the TV, 538 open on my laptop and Twitter on my phone. But Dr. Frank, as you were watching election night, what were your kind of first thoughts and maybe progression of thoughts of what exactly was was going down? I'm going to make a confession contrary to my interests uh, in my reputation as a political scientist, Billy. I didn't watch the election returns on election night. I simply, I watched an old movie and I went to bed and, uh, <laughs> and I, and I woke up at, you know, six o'clock on Wednesday morning to discover, you know, what the news media were saying at that time. So an awful lot had happened. Obviously uh, I learned that the president had, um, claimed um, victory or had celebrated being ahead, at least, in the wee hours of the morning, but that then things began to turn 4, 5, 6 a.m. Uh, with, with more returns because of the unusual character of this election, with the pandemic causing more states to rely more heavily on mail-in and absentee ballots, um, you know, things started to turn and, and break Biden's way because uh, those mail-in ballots went heavily for the Democrats. So, you know, I, I, I didn't have any of that. I was actually, I was actually afraid of the, uh, the anxieties of the evening. If I, if I locked my eyes on the news, you know, from dinner time until bedtime, I thought I'll just never get to sleep. So ignore it until the next morning. That was my policy. Well, I think that's uh, certainly the best policy for mental health. Uh, as I can imagine, about half of America was sleep deprived by November 5th. But Jared, what about you? 
Yeah, so I emerged from election night extremely sleep deprived um, <laughs> because I stayed up pretty much all night looking at election returns and I had Fox News on. Uh, I was also looking into this um, program that I'm a part of and I helped. Um, I was on air uh, for part of the night as a panelist looking at the returns from New York Times and from other media outlets. But um, I think this idea of the Met, the red mirage, this sort of notion that we were talking about with um, in-person voting, really saturating uh, returns with Republican votes and not truly reflecting the will of the American people just because of the nature of this election. I think it's something that came into fruition, especially on that night. Um, I think uh, when people saw the initial returns, saw Florida coming in, the various down ballot races there, I think it painted um, a picture that was not necessarily representative of the entire election because Florida turned out to be a real bright spot for Trump and for Republicans in general. But I think that as we progressed, um, as we looked at further returns, and especially um, as provisionals and, and mail-in ballots came in for various states, uh, we saw uh, we saw the nature of this election turn and become much more favorable to Biden. And I think that um, it, it was a mistake for a lot of us, myself included, to be presumptive on election night and to think that it was going to be some massive Trump victory, because uh, as we all know, the later days proved to be a lot uh, a lot better for Biden, and Biden was able to overtake Trump in those crucial states that handed him an electoral college victory. Absolutely, absolutely. No, you 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 bring up a really really good point because I can just remember the surprise and anxiety that was going through Twitter as every single tweet became all caps, whether you were on the right or left, saying that Trump was going to win. But within a few hours, that idea had completely faded away. So. That actually leads us pretty well into what's going on now, because as of November 16th, uh, President Donald J. Trump has yet to concede the race, despite virtually every major media outlet already calling Joseph Biden president-elect Joseph Biden. Um, I even received a Twitter notification last night of the president tweeting out, in all caps, I won the election. So... Dr. Frank, what do you think about this, that that the president is refusing to concede the election and, in fact, potentially adding to a feedback loop of conspiracy theories and whatever else about the election and its integrity? Yeah, I think it's very unfortunate, Billy. Um, I think it's it's been pretty clear for about the last nine days uh, since the Saturday following the election uh, that the president has lost. Um, there are a number of states uh, yet to certify their results. I think Pennsylvania will do so a week from today, for instance. The 23rd is their, is their deadline. Other, other states have their deadlines this week, some of them Friday the 20th. Um, and so those official certifications, for, usually from the Secretary of State of the state, um, will, uh, I think, put paid to the president's claims with, with something official from the authorities in charge of conducting our elections. Uh, right now, what we have is, you know, some states have certified, others have not. Uh, and so what we what we actually have is uh, the Associated Press and other media making pr projections of uh, who, who will be declared the winner. But those are actually, you know, those are actually really solid projections. Mm -hmm. Four years ago, they projected Trump winning, although he had fewer votes than Hillary Clinton in, a, in an aggregated national popular vote, uh, it was clear uh, by Wednesday morning after the election that Trump had, had plainly won uh, enough state uh, elections, statewide popular votes, 
uh, to win in the Electoral College, but with 306 electoral votes. Now it turns out that it looks like very likely that Joe Biden will have exactly the total that mm -hmm. Donald Trump had four years ago, 306 electoral votes. Uh, the president's current legal challenges are, uh, are going nowhere fast. Uh, an Arizona challenge was abandoned over the weekend. Uh, there have been defeats and setbacks uh, in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin uh, for his lawsuits. Uh, there's a Georgia recount going on, but it's not expected to change the, the, the pretty solidly known outcome for Biden. Um, and, you know, I, I just don't think that, that the president and his lawyers and, and spokespeople have produced the kind of evidence of a uh, of a real uh, discrepancy between what we seem to know and what the truth is underneath this, the, the appearances. Uh, they haven't shown that discrepancy in a way that uh, will actually change the outcome. So, so what's unfortunate is that the president is is now spreading totally discredited, uh, exploded conspiracy theories uh, about things like Dominion software uh, for vote counting. And, uh, and there are some polls that show that some 70% of self-identified Republicans uh, believe the, the, the election was stolen from them or something fraudulent happened. That's really, really unfortunate. Uh, such a high proportion of the president's partisans should think that because it's A, it's not so, and B, uh, believing it's so um, further exacerbates the polarization in this country at a time when maybe, you know, this election is a, is a chance to get past some of that. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. But to follow up on that, why do you think President Trump is attacking our institutions in such a way as the ship is going down? Because it, it, it's almost as if um, his ship is starting to sink, so he, he decides to let fire to it so it burns down instead. Yeah, right. And that's, that's possible. Look, I mean, um, it is... Uh, it's beyond my ability to explain what moves the president to do what he does. Um, uh, this is a, this is a man of considerable uh, complexity. He has there's a lot of demons in Donald Trump, and um, and why he does what he does is is hard, often hard to explain. It is possible he believes what he's saying, in which case he suffers from. Uh, some misconceptions, serious misconceptions, delusions, perhaps. Uh, if he doesn't believe what he's saying and he's actually um, deliberately lying about uh, what happened uh, in the election, I suppose that's even worse. Um, uh, but what he needs and apparently does not have is some strong personalities close to him in his family or his White House who will come to him and say, Mr. President, you really have lost the election. Uh, it's time to concede that that is so. Uh, it's time to stop uh, dividing Americans against one another over insupportable claims of fraud in this election. Mm -hmm. That's what I like to see, but I, I, I don't know uh, if we will. Mm -hmm. uh, um, Professor, I, I want to ask you a question about something you specifically mentioned, which is um, about media projections, because this is something that I've been thinking about for a while. Um, when I was watching Fox News on an election night, um, obviously they were conducting 
um, their projections sort of under the auspices, under the supervision of Arun Mishkin, who is quite reputable uh, for his work with projections. And they projected pre pretty early on um, that Arizona would go towards Biden. That turned out to be true, um, even though it was a very narrow victory uh, after all the ballots, or at least most of the ballots have been counted. But one thing I am wondering is sort of how do we wrestle with uh, the fact that uh, they did get some things incorrect. And one thing I'm specifically looking at is the fact that they projected that Democrats would gain seats in the House. Uh, and obviously, as we've seen, Republicans have made considerable gains there. Yeah, that's great. Uh, great point, Jared. I, I, I want to distinguish between, um, well, the, when you say uh, that, that Democrats were projected to make gains in the House, are you speaking of pre-election forecasts of how the, the votes would come out? Or were there actual election night uh, projections that the results showed that outcome? Uh, I'm talking about on election night, there is an actual projection uh, that say- Oh, that, that Democrats gains. would gain seats in the House. That's interesting. Right. So that that would lead me to, to inquire uh, on, on what were those projections based? Sometimes um, media will rely on exit polls for early projections. And exit polls are simply, I mean, they're, 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 they're not a tally of the votes. They're, uh, they're, they're an effort to sample people leaving the polling places after casting their ballots and ask them what they just did. Uh, I, I hope that nobody was actually relying on exit polls this year because there were so many people not going to the polls to cast their ballots, but instead doing so uh, by mail. Uh, the, the, the best projections uh, are based on what election officials themselves are reporting as votes come in and are counted. Um, so uh, then, then the question is, all right, if they, if they relied on those and they still got the House results wrong, um, they, were, uh, they were relying therefore on misleading early returns from certain uh, elections that showed Democrat favorable outcomes uh, rather than waiting for the aggregation of, of votes from, from, from more districts. Uh, that's all I can figure. Uh, would would produce that, uh, you know the the AP uh, projection that that Biden was going to win, which came on Saturday morning after the election, uh, that was based on tallies they were getting from the states themselves, uh, not from exit polls, not from any other unofficial source, uh, and I think that that they generally wait until a very high percentage of the vote. Has been counted, so that so that the whatever remaining vote might uh, still need to be counted, whether it's five, ten, or fifteen percent, uh, is not expected to change the outcome uh, because the margin is sufficient. Yeah, and that actually brings up a really interesting point about down ballot GOP tickets, because there has been a certain uh, certainly it is easy to see that down ballot senators, state legislators, et cetera, have outperformed Trump in many areas. And so, Dr. Frank, as we look forward um, with the Republican Party and whatever else, what do we make of that? Is that a, a rejection of Donald Trump, the individual? Is that a rejection of Trumpism? Or is Trumpism still alive and well within the Republican Party? It just happened to be that the founder of said ism is not 
uh, as kosher as it used to be? Yeah, it's a really that's a really great question, Billy. The um, some of the best analysis I've seen of this is by uh, a Princeton graduate, Ramesh Panuru of National Review Magazine, class of '95 here at Princeton, uh, and uh, and and Panuru's question he doesn't really have an answer but his question is what does trumpism look like post trump right without trump what what is it exactly what what would it consist of uh, without the president that's that's a that's a really interesting question um the president uh ran stronger in 2020 than in 2016 and still lost because uh because biden ran considerably stronger than clinton Four years earlier, so the president added added to he did for instance in Philadelphia a, in a state mm-hmm. that it clearly looks like he lost. Uh, the president got more votes in Philadelphia in 2020 than he had gotten in 2016. Uh, still, you're right. Some down down ballot Republicans ran ahead of the president, so the president not only didn't have coattails, despite getting more votes in 2020 than in 2016. Um, he kind of had reverse coattails. Um, it's a very, it's a very mixed up election, you know, uh, to describe the kind of battle over the center in American politics that has gone on between our two major parties for decades. People have often said, you know, American politics is a ground game fought out inch for inch between the 40 yard lines. It looks to me like in 2020, it was fought out between the 48 yard lines. Like there's about four yards of churned up muddy field <laughs> between these two parties. And these very mixed results in the House, Senate and presidency are the result. So the president ran stronger than in 2016 and still lost. He added, it appears, Hispanics and blacks to the Republican coalition, but still, of course, far from the majority of those groups. Um, the Senate actually um, uh, represented a, represents a setback for Republicans. They, it looks like they'll still hold it depending on the Georgia results and a couple of runoffs in January, but, but there are gonna be fewer Republicans in the Senate than before this election. On the other hand, in the House of Representatives, the Democrats lost ground. They're still in control, but by a smaller margin. What to make of all this uh, is very difficult, except to say uh, that I think that uh, while Americans are still very polarized and very partisan, there's ha- some of this has to be explained by a surprising amount of ticket splitting by voters. Hmm. Um, I think that there there could well be, for instance, some people who voted for Republican candidates for Senate and House and voted for Joe Biden or voted for a third party candidate or voted for no one at all or a write in for president. Uh, this would account uh, for the for the president's defeat in certain respects. Um, so uh, what, what would account for that? I think um, the president's uh, low approval rating, despite a strong economy, his is poor performance in many people's view or during the pandemic of the last 10 months. Um, all of these, uh, I think, contributed to his loss. Mm-hmm. So do you think that by splitting tickets, that's actually a good sign potentially for uh, for the polarization in our country because they're not 
just voting straight down ticket on one side and then their friend is voting straight down ticket on on the other side or yeah, I, I think this is, is too optimistic this, this well this phenomenon had to be occurring uh, only at the margins i believe mm -hmm. um i think that uh i think that the the more people um uh, pay attention to politics the more polarized they are um and so this ticket splitting that might account for this outcome uh, would probably be among a, uh, a relatively small minority of voters, but a strong enough minority, a large enough one to affect the outcome of this election at the margins. This was also, of course, a record high turnout election. And mm -hmm. one of the things I've said to students for years and kind of takes some of my students aback once in a while is, um, I'm not convinced that high turnout is is a sign of health in a democracy and low turnout is a sign of ill health, Ra but rather the reverse, that, that when turnout is low, it's because Americans don't see, they get, they, they're a little complacent because they don't see a whole lot at stake in our politics. Well, what would make you think that way? The fact that the country is pretty stable and in okay condition makes politics sort of not intrude on your daily life very much. Countries with really, really high turnout are the ones with a lot at stake, you know, Nicaragua, Hungary, you know, countries where it, where it really matters who's in charge of the country because it's gonna move very sharply in a certain direction. Well, we just had a really, really high turnout election. And a lot of people would applaud the fact that more Americans voted than ever before but that in itself might be a sign of how feverish our politics has become. And that high temperature uh, uh, maybe should be brought down a bit. I'd like to know what Jared thinks about all this. So I think there's a, a, a lot to take in. And, and one thing that I've been trying to be cautious about is not extrapolating too much information from the initial returns, but sort of getting a bigger picture uh, when everything comes in. But my opinion is one that's been echoed by Marco Rubio and also some more conservative thinkers like uh, Adrian Vermeule. Um, and it's this notion that the Republican Party is transitioning itself uh, to be less focused um, on per perhaps sort of racial differences and more sort of focused on this working class coalition. Uh, I think that we're seeing that with a lot of the places where Trump has improved uh, in comparison to other Republicans. I think if you look at Florida, for example, you're seeing uh, that heavily Hispanic areas, uh, especially places with a large Cuban or Colombian or Venezuelan constituency, those places have drastically moved towards Trump in comparison to his 2016 performance. And a lot of these areas are also characterized by the fact that uh, they are sort of middle class, perhaps even working class. Also, you look at um, the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas. You look at counties like Star County, Zapata County, which actually voted for Trump uh, after voting for Hillary Clinton by a landslide four years ago. And Stark County actually uh, only voted for, for Joe Biden by around 5% after voting for Hillary Clinton by around 60%. Um, these are areas that are heavily Hispanic, among the most Hispanic areas in the nation. Um, and they move drastically towards Trump. And I think that uh, Trump sort of has a special flavor that I think we're seeing uh, in the way that he appeals to more working class audiences. And so I think that even beyond Trump, if Trump decides to relegate himself and stay out of politics, I think that that, that type of that 
that, that type of language, a type of appeal that has been espoused by Trump is something that Republicans uh, would be uh, best served if they tried to use that in continuously in the future. Um, also, as the professor said, you know, uh, Trump made gains among African-American voters. I mean, if you look really in the weeds uh, at a lot of major cities, not just on the presidential level, not just on the top line, but also down ballot, you do see that Republicans have actually made considerable gains. You know, for example, you look at um, some of the congressional results in the Bronx, which is a, a heavily urban, uh, heavily uh, non-white area, and it's a place where Democrats get some of their largest margins in the country. You see even there that Trump has made considerable gains, that Republicans made considerable gains down ballot. Now, of course, I think that Biden won because that was largely offset uh, by the sort of suburban realignment that we've seen in a lot of more wealthy, college-educated suburbs of major cities, uh, where that rhetoric, that tone that was given by Trump did not necessarily work. And so those, um, those places, I think, largely gravitated towards Biden because he was more of an establishment type of candidate, among other reasons. But I think that the Republican Party looking forward has a lot of opportunities, uh, especially in those areas that have been uh, historically and traditionally Democratic, but trying to just get a sliver of the population to perhaps reconsider their voting intentions and decide to look towards a more populist direction I think that if the Republican Party can effectively brand itself or rebrand itself as a working class party that does not give regard to whatever race or ethnicity you're from, I think that the Republican Party is going to have uh, a, a very opportune future. I think they're going to have a lot of chances to increase their base and to really uh, do well in a variety of elections. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point, Jared. Um, something that I thought was really interesting between 2016 and this year's election was the lack of dialogue about immigration in this election. It, 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 it's almost as if everyone forgot about the wall and immigration policy and all of that. And what happens, the Republicans ended up taking in a much higher Hispanic vote. I don't know if, if, if that's exactly correlative, but it's very obvious that there are some doors opening that previously were not there for the Republican strategists. So now my big question is, if the, the Republican Party is moving towards a more populist, uh, socially conservative party, then how how best should conservatism be presented to the electorate if it's going to be maybe a different type of conservatism? If it is, I don't know, then maybe the 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 George W. Bush compassionate conservatism or previous uh, methods of conservatism that we've seen presented to the American people. Yeah, great. It's a good question. I'm, I'm going to circle back to something that Jared said and and say that 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 while I'm sympathetic to the thesis that the Republican Party is becoming more of a working class coalition, uh, that's a work in progress and it's far from complete. Um, Trump, for instance, uh, lost voters making less than one hundred thousand vote uh, hundred thousand dollars a year and one voter is making more than $100,000 a year. So if, if, if that's, you know, if that's the hinge point, if $100,000, whether you make more or less, uh, the, you know, uh, determines things, it still looks like the Republican Party of old, substantially, right? Um, Trump also uh, adapted himself to the existing Republican Party uh, conventions and public policy patterns. Uh, as well as forcing the party to adapt to him. So in some respects, you know, Trump's impact on Republican uh, 
policies and Republican uh, belief systems uh, was, was an impact at the margins and not at the core. Um, it, remains, it, may, it remains a conservative party, a party dedicated, uh, in theory at least, to lower taxes and smaller government, um, but now trying to flavor that with more uh, attention to the jobs, the wages, and the, the, the lives of uh, people making less money and having less education. All of that is, all of that is true, uh, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's something that's it's going to need uh, a lot of work, I think, to bear fruit. Look, it, the Republicans have to come to grips with the fact that um, in neither of President Trump's elections did they get a majority of the American people voting for them. He squeaked through on one of those anomalous elections with a victory in the Electoral College four years ago. So did George W. Bush in 2000. That's two of those elections in two decades. Um, uh, since the Cold War ended 30 years ago, and this, I'm stealing this from Ramesh Panuru, who again, I recommend his analysis in the latest National Review. Since the Cold War ended, Republican presidential candidates have won a majority of the votes of the American people one time, 2004, okay? So they lost, they lost the elections of 92 and 96, lost the popular vote and won the electoral vote in 2000, then won an outright victory in 2004. But since then, it's been Obama 08, Obama 12, Trump with a minority presidency in 2016 and now a loss in 2020. So that's, if, you have a, if you're a party and you have a 30 year record now of winning the votes of a majority of the American people one time in seven or eight elections, you got work to do. You got real work to do to persuade people um, to back your candidates and to identify with your party. Um, I do think that, that, the, that the working class coalition thesis has something to it. But again, if you're, if you're still losing among people making less than 100 grand and winning among people making more, maybe the appeal to those working class voters you're drawing in is less economic than cultural. Maybe that's where the emphasis should be on the cultural and social issues. Look, I mean, the Democrats also have to worry too about uh, what looks like an election that failed to embrace the most woke elements of their left-wing fringe, okay? This was not a great election for AOC and the squad. Um, so there's a kind of a centrist outcome here uh, and uh, both parties should be paying heed to uh, finding those voters in the center and persuading them, not hectoring, not condemning, not anathematizing, but persuading those voters in the center to come with them. Absolutely. So looking forward at a 2024, I know we just barely finished 2020 and we still have uh, a few months to go in 2020. So we don't, don't even know what surprises will come up as we end up this um, memorable year to say the least. But looking forward to 2020, what are, and this is for both of you guys, what are some things that the Republicans should make sure that they have on the ticket to potentially reverse that uh, 30-year drought of popular vote um, 
uh, losses? I, gosh, if Jerry would like to go first, I have to. I'd have to think about that one. Um, <laughs> you young people, you young people have to uh, have to seize the day. I think, and 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 imagine for yourselves uh, what will bring all these new young voters into the party. So I'll let Jared tackle that one first. This is a really tough question. Um, I think that one of the things that I've interpreted from the 2020 election, one of the reasons why um, Biden and Harris were able to be a winning ticket is because, in my opinion, at least, their ticket represents a, a big tent ideal um, of the modern incarnation of the Democratic Party. But I don't think that a party that includes you know, the, more, the, the more social democratic types like AOC and then center-right conservatives like John Kasich, I'm not sure if that's sustainable but it didn't manage to win an election. And so while I do think um, that um, it's not sustainable, it was able to get them an election. And I think that that'll help them sort of guide the way that they're gonna be governing. So I think that in terms of the next election, 2024, I think that Republicans also have to look to embrace that more, uh, that more big tent notion, trying to really usher in two distinct individuals onto the ticket represents, excuse me, who represent different wings of the party. Because we had, for example, Kamala Harris, who was one of the most progressive senators, according to some accounts in the Senate. And then you had Joe Biden, who was a pretty uh, typical center-left liberal who has governed as such and who was vice president. And I think he was able to appeal to those types of audiences that helped him win a few states. So I think that it, personally, I think that if you have someone who sort of emulates that more uh, nationalist style not trying to alienate different people, but sort of, sort of invoking the types of uh, the type of cultural language that helped Trump gain gain greater appeal among those minority audiences. I think that that would be an asset to the ticket. I think someone like Josh Hawley, for example, uh, would really be able to achieve that. I think that Josh Hawley, uh, as we've seen with his tenure in the Senate, uh, he's very calculating, but he really does again emulate those types of qualities that I think help Trump be successful with certain types of audiences. On the other hand, we are seeing, um, uh, as the professor mentioned, we are seeing some of these issues that Rep the Republican Party is facing. You know, how do we adapt to a changed society where so many voters uh, have been turned away from the Republican brand, especially people, um, you know, more of that more of that suburban type. You know, as we saw with organizations like the Lincoln Project, um, there was a large demographic of people who traditionally voted Republican, perhaps even helped the Republican Party get a majority of the popular vote. Uh, in past elections, and they've been turned away, and they have cost the Republican Party a few crucial places. Uh, and so I think that more of a pragmatic or establishment type, uh, not necessarily reverting back to the Bush years, but someone who is really able to string together those necessary coalitions, um, someone who's focused uh, perhaps on a pragmatic type of foreign policy, someone who is going to try to appeal to those audiences that have uh, been swayed towards the Democratic brand in, in recent years, one name I can think of is perhaps a Nikki Haley type. She's someone who historically has been respected by both parties. Um, I think that I'm not sure if he would even be a viable contender, but someone sort of with the reputation of John Huntsman. He's been an ambassador in both Democratic and Republican administrations. He's generally well respected. Um, and again, he's pragmatic. He doesn't try uh, to institute polemics. He's someone who is very much result oriented. I think personally that if he had someone like that uh, to be sort of a counterweight 
to one of the more nationalist and vitriolic types of people on the ticket, perhaps you know, Josh Hawley, that could create the type of big tent coalition that I think would be necessary for Republicans to not only win the Electoral College, but to also have a shot at winning the popular vote for the first time in decades. Yeah, I think there's I think there's a lot to that. Hawley, Hawley and Haley uh, uh, represent fairly different approaches to coalition building in the Republican Party. Hawley is considerably more uh, Trumpian in his in his affect and his rhetoric and even some of his policy proposals about big tech, for instance. Uh, Haley's more more traditionalist, and of course, uh, after being a governor, she then earned her foreign policy chops as the UN ambassador for Trump. And, and she did a really good job there, uh, uh, I, I think, without, uh, without harming her brand with any of the traditional elements of the Republican Party. So she has a, she has a really bright future, I believe. I, I, one thing I really hope doesn't happen is uh, I, I hope that, that President Trump, whenever he accepts the inevitable uh, and concedes this election, I hope he does not intend to or pretend to uh, run again in 2024. Um, he would be past 80 by then. So, of course, with Joe Biden, which is why I, I, I actually think that Joe Biden may may not run for reelection four years hence, but hand off to Harris or someone else in his party. Uh, but I, I hope that the president doesn't try to be the second coming of Grover Cleveland, our only president who served two non-consecutive terms. Um, uh, I, I think the party uh, needs to think hard about what worked for Donald Trump and what, uh, what good effects might be gleaned from the reconfiguration of its coalition over the last four or five years, uh, but actually get past and beyond Donald Trump uh, in, into a future that is not overshadowed by his sort of uh, hyper-partisan uh, personal style, uh, which I think is just, we don't need him hanging around, you know, uh, toying with the idea of running again in 2024. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I think that part will be incredibly fascinating. Without a doubt, he'll become a super pundit uh, on some sort of channel or maybe just on the Twitter sphere in general. But I wanted to thank you both so, so much for this fantastic conversation. Uh, we've covered quite a few things and I think brought some some clarity to all of the mixed signals and uh, conflicting data. Um, I think there's a real solid chance that we look back on this election as a potentially a tipping point or as a hinge point for the Republican Party and potentially even conservatism itself and how it is it is presented and accepted by the American public. But thank you so much, Dr. Frank and Jared. Uh, we would also like to thank our audio uh, editor, Jermaine Washington, and our content managers, Christopher Kane and Matthew Wilson. If you are interested at all, as you should be, in the Princeton Tory, please go to princetontory.com where you can read our latest issue on everything about the election, including a fantastic piece by our very own Jared Stone. So thank you very much, Dr. Frank and Jared. Thanks, Billy. Thank you, Jared. Yeah, thank you.